Hello, everyone, and welcome to McGill Cares webcast series supporting family and informal caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver, certified dementia care consultant, and founder of McGill University's Dementia Education Program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare, healthcare professionals to oversee the program, who include Dr. Jose Moret from the Division of Geriatric Medicine and Dr. Serge Gauthier, Professor Emeritus, formerly of the McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging. These webcasts are made possible thanks to the generosity of our donors, and I would like to thank the Zeller Family Foundation for sponsoring today's webcasts. So today we will be talking about understanding Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia. My guest is Dr. Madeline Sharp. Dr. Sharp is a neurologist specializing in movement disorders. Her research goal is to develop more precise models of cognitive dysfunction in patients grounded in neurobiology to develop and test new behavioral and pharmacological therapies. Dr. Sharp, welcome to McGill Cares. Thank you so much for having me. So today um, we're going to allow you to give us a presentation on really understanding Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia. So I'll let you take it away. Thank you so much, Claire, for that introduction. And I'm really uh, thrilled to be able to be here and contribute to your wonderful talk series. Um, and so, yes, you asked me to speak today about uh, the dementia that occurs in association with Parkinson's disease, as well as Lewy body dementia. And so the title of my presentation is Lewy body dementias, which is a diff bit different than dementia with Lewy bodies. Uh, and already I'm bringing up all of this confusing terminology. And so I hope to be able to clear that up a little bit. <clears throat> So uh, Lewy body dementias is actually an umbrella term that refers to um, two different conditions. One is Parkinson's disease dementia. And so that's the dementia that occurs in people who have Parkinson's disease. And the second is dementia with Lewy bodies, which is uh, dementia that occurs in people who don't necessarily already have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So this umbrella term Lewy body dementia simply refers to people who develop a dementia and so who develop cognitive problems uh, and who are presumed or proven eventually uh, if we go to autopsy to have um, something in the brain called Lewy bodies. And so uh, Lewy bodies are inclusions in neurons. And you can see this image here, this dark brown staining refers to this abnormal protein that we refer to as alpha-synuclein that accumulates inside neurons in inclusions that are referred to as Lewy bodies um, named after the person who uh, in discovery. And so uh, uh, as you've probably had speakers uh, previously on your in this talk series talk about different forms of dementia, most of the neurodegenerative disorders that we deal with are associated with different types of abnormal protein accumulations in the brain. And so in this case, we're specifically talking about these particular protein accumulations called Lewy bodies. And Lewy bodies can occur in the setting of Parkinson's disease and they can occur in the setting of dementia with Lewy bodies. And in fact, the only difference between these two, you know, we'll call them subconditions, is the progression over time and, and in what order things appear. But at the level of the brain, uh, when pathologists go in and look at the brain, the, the appearance of the brain is actually quite similar. And so there's still actually a lot of debate as to whether these are two truly different conditions reflecting somewhat different disease mechanisms, or if they just happen to be the same disease that for whatever reason we're catching at different points in time. <clears throat> so to give you a bit more of a visual about all of that, 
in Parkinson's disease, um, so this is a picture of a brain, kind of a taken, you know, a side view of the brain. And you can see these regions in red, which refer to the parts of the brain that are typically affected in the earlier parts of the disease. And as a result of these, this part of the brain being affected, people with Parkinson's disease will initially manifest with the motor symptoms that are uh, uh, generally well recognized. So tremor, slowness of movement, changes to gait. And over time, and that can be over a period of anywhere between one and 20 or more, more, even more than 20 years, the disease and the parts of the brain that are affected spread to include most of the brain uh, eventually. And in particular, these regions, uh, I hope that you can see my mouse as I drag it over the screen, in particular, this kind of uh, outside part of the brain, which we refer to as the cortex. And that's important because in order to, to have a dementia, the part of the brain that is affected needs to be the part of the brain that uh, uh, regulates uh, cognition. So things like attention, uh, memory, uh, visual processing, those sorts of things. And so in order for someone to manifest with dementia, we know that the parts of the brain that must be involved are these kind of more outer parts. So the cortical region. And so in Parkinson's disease, there's this slow progression with initially these deeper parts of the brain that regulate the motor function being affected. And eventually, in the majority of people, there is a spreading of this disease process to involve these outer parts of the brain, which are the cortical regions, which results in, in dementia. Now, in dementia with Lewy bodies, when people present and when they therefore when they manifest with their signs of dementia, they already have involvement of these outer regions of the brain. But that is not to say that they never had involvement of these deeper regions. As I was mentioning earlier, in autopsy studies that have compared the appearance of the brains of people with who were diagnosed with dementia with Lewy bodies and people who were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, in fact, there is similar involvement of all of the brain regions. So why is it that these people don't initially present with the motor symptoms? We don't exactly know. Maybe the maybe the 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 degenerative process happens in all brain regions at once, rather than following this slow progression through the brain regions, that's still unclear. <clears throat> so that's the kind of general organization of how we think of the uh, dementias in relationship to uh, Lewy body. So either Parkinson's disease dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies. So um, <clears throat> One of the questions I was asked to talk about is how is it that we make this diagnosis? And so I wrote here in italics clinical diagnosis because in the neurologist's office or in the internist's office or the family doctor's office, we can only talk about clinical diagnoses. And that's important because the, the highest level of certainty that we can have in making a diagnosis of a dementia in someone who we're seeing in our clinic is actually of a probable diagnosis. A definitive diagnosis can only be made at the time of autopsy because there's only so much, of course, that we're able to ascertain from what's going on in the brain when we're simply examining someone uh, in the office and even as a result of doing different kinds of, of brain scans. <clears throat> and so um, this may have come up in, in prior talks, but I'm putting it up again here, the, the clinical definition of dementia. And so, uh, and this applies to whether we're talking about dementia with Lewy bodies, Parkinson's disease dementia, Alzheimer's dementia, frontotemporal dementia. Dementia is really a descriptive term that refers to the degree to which someone's cognition has changed and how much it's affecting their function. And so to be diagnosed with dementia, one has to have had a progressive cognitive decline of sufficient magnitude to interfere with social or occupational function. And you can see already there that this is a very subjective assessment and that uh, the point which one would be considered to have dementia 
is greatly influenced by all kinds of other factors that have nothing to do directly with the disease process in their brain. And so you might not notice that someone has a reduction in their uh, social or occupational function if they have uh, wonderful supports around them because it becomes it's less apparent that those that that function is reduced. Uh, people who are um, <clears throat> or that the reduction in, in social or occupational function might also be more apparent in someone who is still working or someone who is still very actively involved in their everyday life. And so any change from what they were doing may be more apparent than someone who's uh, a bit older and, and perhaps a bit less involved in, their, in, in, in a variety of different activities. So um, what are the features that allow us to make these uh, different diagnoses? So uh, we mentioned Parkinson's disease dementia. Uh, I, I more or less said this already, but the diagnosis of dementia in the, of Parkinson's disease dementia can only be made in someone who already has an established diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And so who has the typical motor findings of that disease and in whom the, the cognitive decline has occurred progressively over a matter of many years and sometimes up to decades. And just to give you a bit of context, after um, a variety of epidemiological studies have shown that after 10 years of uh, disease with Parkinson's disease, about 75% of patients would be considered to have dementia. But what's interesting is that we probably in general in the movement disorder clinic where we are following people with Parkinson's disease for 5, 10, 20 years, we often don't uh, use the term dementia. Uh, it's kind of viewed more as the natural progression of the disease. And that label, I think, is less often applied to people than in other settings, like people who actually have fairly mild uh, cognitive changes who go to a memory clinic and who are uh, more uh, quickly diagnosed with a dementia. <clears throat> so the second diagnosis that we've been talking about is dementia with Lewy bodies. Uh, and here, as a clinician, as a neurologist trying to make this diagnosis, because in the, in the when we're considering a dementia with Lewy bodies, that means we're considering a diagnosis of dementia in someone who doesn't already have Parkinson's disease. And that means when we're evaluating someone with new cognitive changes and cognitive impairment, we're having to consider the other diagnoses and the other uh, dementias that could possibly explain these cognitive changes. So the things that we're considering are the other two uh, most common uh, dementias, and those are Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia. <clears throat> and so vascular, I'm, I'm sure that your audience is familiar with Alzheimer's disease and for vascular dementia, it's a dementia associated with having had multiple small strokes. And so the, the key features of dementia with Lewy bodies are the, are the aspects of the cognitive change that allow us to make the diagnosis of dementia with Lewy bodies over one of Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia are uh, first that there sometimes there's some hints of some motor symptoms that are similar to those of, to those of Parkinson's disease. And the second two items, the, the third and the last item on this list are hallucinations and fluctuating cognition. So these are two um, changes in cognition and behavior that are very particular to dementia with Lewy bodies, even in the, or maybe especially in the earlier parts of, of the dementia. And so <clears throat> I'll go into a bit more details later about what these two uh, symptoms uh, represent. But really, the thing that we're doing as a neurologist when we're trying to make a diagnosis of the type of dementia that someone may have is that we're observing the pattern of cognitive and behavioral changes. So we're trying to take the whole picture of the person and trying to see in what areas of their cognitive and their behavioral function are they having trouble? And can that give us clues about which parts of the brain are primarily affected by this uh, dementia? And that's important because uh, Alzheimer's disease typically tends to affect different parts of the brain than dementia with Lewy bodies. And that can give different patterns of cognitive deficits <clears throat> and of cognitive changes. 
So uh, about that pattern of cognitive changes, <clears throat> the way we think about that is we think about the different uh, domains of cognitive function. So um, the this is a, a somewhat descriptive way of thinking about all of the different cognitive uh, functions that the brain supports. And the big categories that we tend to think about when we're trying to assess people's cognition along all of the, the full range of cognitive functions is how are they doing with respect to their attention? How are they doing with respect to their executive function, their visual spatial function, and their memory? <clears throat> and so I'm going to go through each of these, uh, and not in too much detail, but just to give some examples of how it is that we assess for changes in those domains and the kinds of tests that uh, people are often asked to do uh, in the clinic to, to get at that. So attention is probably somewhat um, intuitive to people what this means. Um, the way that this comes up uh, when people are describing the, the changes that they have felt themselves or that others around them, that their caregivers and their loved ones have noticed, is things like difficulty following conversations or difficulty following the flow of a story, uh, watching a TV show and kind of losing track of what was happening uh, early on. Now, of course, there's a lot of overlap between these different cognitive domains and problems with memory, for instance, could also influence your ability to keep track of a storyline when you're, when you're watching a movie or something like that. But uh, these are the typical types of things that people who, who have changes to their ability to uh, pay attention to things uh, will describe or that others will notice of them. And so some of the tests that we do in the clinic, <clears throat> so some of these examples that I'm going to give are drawn from the MOCA, the Montreal uh, Cognitive Test, which, I, uh, which may have been uh, brought up at previous sessions or that uh, people in the, in the audience may have seen administered or had administered uh, to them. And so uh, one of the tests that we do in this MOCA is we ask people to repeat a series of number in the same order. So for instance, two, one, eight, five, four. And so of course you need memory, but more than memory, you actually need to be able to pay attention to the examiner as they are telling you this list of numbers. And you have to be able to really concentrate on what they're saying and block out everything else that has that is happening in the room around you in order to be able to actually then remember them and speak those numbers back. The other uh, typical test that we'll do that is also a test of attention is uh, we'll ask people to count back in sevens. So to start at 100 and to count to subtract seven and to keep subtracting seven. And so that too is a test of attention. I mean, it's a test of math. And so it is true that people differ very much in their math ability, and that has nothing to do with, with uh, cognitive impairment. Um, but in the absence of you know, known difficulties with math, you have to be able to pay attention to the number that you just said to keep in mind the instruction that you were given, which is to count back in sevens and to focus on that mental calculation and then to keep doing that and do that over and over again. So it's actually fairly high demand on attention. <clears throat> so uh, the next domain uh, that I wanted to mention is executive function. <clears throat> and so um, this is basically, you know, the, the skills that are required if you're the CEO of a company. You need to have very good executive functions if you're the one who's in charge of anything. And all of us are have that kind of role in our own lives. And so it's those types of things, but, you know, in the, at the scale of everyday life that can be affected when you have changes to your executive function. So the questions we'll ask people to see if they have trouble with uh, executive functions are things like, uh, have you noticed trouble with planning? So planning things like trips, making lots of decisions, uh, having to plan the, the meals for a week. 
And it's, it's a little hard to put your finger on what is the thing that can make it hard. So of course, if you have very poor attention skills, it'll be hard for you to kind of sit and actually plan an entire trip at the computer or plan your week of meals. But it's more than just attention. It's the, it's the ability to be able to um, uh, integrate multiple sources of information and to stay on task. Uh, the other thing that can be uh, uh, involved in executive functions is the ability to multitask. And so uh, we hear about this difficulty, especially in people who are uh, still working. And in most of us who are still in working positions, I mean, multitasking is important for at all stages of life. But, uh, you know, when you're working and you're being bombarded by emails and phone calls and all that kind of thing, the ability to quickly change tasks uh, and to remember what it is that you're doing when you get to the next task uh, reflects the ability to multitask. And so in the kind of everyday at home life, uh, one way this may come up is the inability to, for instance, uh, uh, continue cooking while holding a conversation or uh, to drive while being on the phone. And so that's why we'll recommend to people who are starting to show some cognitive impairment, even if they're still uh, in, in good shape to drive, that they should not be driving while they're doing anything else because that requires multitasking. Um, and then also a little bit more um, um uh, hard to describe is that all of the skills that are required in solving a problem are also considered uh, multi-executive function. And so uh, some of the ways in which we assess this in our testing, uh, one is called the word fluency task. And so in that task, we ask people, we give people a minute and we ask them to name all of the words they can think of that start with the letter F or all of the words that they think of that belong to a particular category, like farm animals. And uh, while this is also a test of language skills, which generally we're, we're, uh, we're less worried about in people who have Parkinson's disease, dementia, or bodies, it actually reflects a lot of executive function because if you uh, try and do this in your head now, your approach, you're going to have a system to your approach. Either you're going to scan the room that you're in and look for all of the things that start with F or, or start in a category and then go through all of those words that you think can start with F. And there's going to be a logical sequence to the words that you come up with uh, that reflect some degree as executive function. And it if you lose executive functions, it becomes harder to do that. And therefore you're, sw you're slower in being able to pull up these words. And so the number of words that you can generate is reduced. <clears throat> And then there are some uh, somewhat fancier problem-solving games that that we tend to not be able to do just in the in the clinic, but that are done if you go with uh, for full testing with a neuropsychologist. So the third domain of cognitive function I wanted to talk about uh, that can be affected in uh, the Lewy body dementias is visuospatial function. And so uh, one of the ways that this comes up is people describe a tendency to get lost or. Um, uh, even uh, kind of earlier hints of that can be uh, uh, slightly more difficulty orienting oneself in unfamiliar territory. Or sometimes we'll ask if you go to a new mall, you tend to get turned around more than you used to. Is it a little destabilizing for you to go to a new place like that? That would reflect a change in visuospatial function. Uh, difficulty assembling things, drawing things. I mean, some of these things are things that people have are less prone to doing in their everyday life. And so... <clears throat> Sometimes the challenge is finding examples that are applicable to uh, the person's life to really try and get a sense of uh, whether this is something that has changed for them. And so uh, here too, we have a couple of tests that we can do uh, in the clinic setting to start to assess for this. <clears throat> One is uh, whether your, uh, your ability in drawing a clock. <clears throat> 
And the second is copying a cube. So I have some examples here. So uh, you see here on the left is an example of a cube. It's often on the piece of paper normally that we use for this test, we show an example of a cube that has been drawn in three dimensions like this. And then we ask people not even to draw from, from memory, but to copy the picture of the cube. And uh, that is something that can become very difficult. And, it, and again, there's always, uh, you know, individual differences in uh, drawing skills. And so some of these things are things that we have to uh, consider. But uh, you can see here that this particular person had a lot of difficulty drawing this cube and kind of lost the ability to make it a three-dimensional uh, shape. And so uh, the corners are off and some of the lines don't connect. And so we actually have a specific way in which we grade uh, the change in ability to draw a cube. And uh, to show you an example of drawing a clock, so I think this actually, I'm sorry for the quality of the image. Um, what you can see here is that the circle was drawn. And so the, the exact instructions given to people are, please draw a clock and include all the numbers. And then you let the person do that. And then you tell them, please draw in a particular time. So often the time that we use is uh, 10 past 11 or something like that. And we have to, we make sure that they draw the shorthand and the longer hand. And what you can see here is this person drew the, the, the outside, the outline of the clock. And then the numbers are kind of bunched in in the bottom here and are not evenly distributed around the full circumference of the truck. So that too reflects an, uh, a change in the ability to kind of organize items in space <clears throat> for an item that is very familiar to most people. And so the, the final cognitive domain that I wanted to talk to you about is um, memory. And so um, people often think about memory as being a classic uh, change in cognition associated with Alzheimer's disease. And that's true. It's also a change that we see in most dementias, but in other dementias, the, the cause of the memory uh, deficit or the memory impairment is different when we think about it in terms of the processes that are going on in the brain. And so um, uh, maybe I'll get to that in a second. I'll just give you first the, the examples, the ways in which we will uh, ascertain for the uh, changes in memory is we'll ask people if they have a new tendency to be forgetful. So are they misplacing objects, forgetting appointments, uh, going into rooms and, and not remembering what they were going in there for? And of course, you know, all of us experience some degree of this. And so as with all other domains, I think, you know, everyone is so much more in tune with the changes in their memory function because it's something that's so classically described with dementia. So everyone is uh, has a tendency, I think, to scan themselves for changes in their memory. Um, the trick is always to determine is this similar to what you see in terms of changes in the people around you who are of similar age, or does this stand out as being a bit more than that? And is this worrisome to you and to the people around you? Um, and so the key thing about the memory changes in Parkinson's disease, dementia, and with in dementia with Lewy bodies is that unlike in Alzheimer's disease, problem here is simply with accessing the memory. So the memory may be made. So that means that the information is actually encoded into the brain, but getting access to that information, which we call the process of retrieving information, retrieving memories is what is difficult. And we actually think that's because the, the ability to retrieve information uh, depends a lot on executive function because you have to be able to organize in this setting for this demand, this is in the information that I need, this is where it's stored and it is connected to this other information. All of those things need to come together very quickly to be able to access the information in the in, at the speed at which we are used to accessing it in our everyday uh, use of memory. <clears throat> so the problem is not with making the memories. 
Whereas, for instance, in the in the more classic form of Alzheimer's disease, the problem is really with making that memory in the first place. It's not there. And so we can begin to tease apart those different types of memory problems with some of the tests that we do in the clinic. So the classic way in which we assess this is we give people a list of five words. Uh, we tell them to practice them with us, and then we give them a few minutes. We go on to do some other stuff. And then we ask them uh, uh, which or how many, we ask them what words they remember of that list of five words. <clears throat> and so what we'll see, the pattern that we'll see in people with Parkinson's disease, dementia, or dementia with Lewy bodies, is that they may have difficulty uh, remembering some or all of those five words. But if we then go on to give them a clue, either saying, so let's say one of the words you were asked to remember was table. And so they don't remember table. And then we give them a clue like a piece of furniture that clue is all that they needed to actually be able to go and retrieve that information. And that, that is kind of the evidence to us as clinicians that memory was, was encoded. It's just that retrieving it was a bit difficult. <clears throat> and so the next level of, of hint or clue that we'll give people if the category clue uh, is not sufficient to help them is we'll give them a choice. So a multiple uh, choice of, the, of different words. So table, chair, and desk, and see if they can remember the item when presented with a list of items that includes the one that they were asked to remember. <clears throat> Uh, whereas, for instance, classically, someone with Alzheimer's disease and associated memory problems, even with that, uh, with those clues, they will not be able to remember the item because the encoding it, the actual storage of it in the first place is where the problem lies. So um, those are the, the, the domains of, uh, function, of cognitive function that are affected. But... Um, uh, and this statement applies to all dementias. There are many other uh, spheres of function that are affected too. I'm focusing today just on cognition and on uh, behavior. I mean, there are other uh, things that are um, uh, that we spend a lot of time discussing with people who have, uh, in particular, dementia with Lewy bodies and Parkinson's disease dementia. But there are also a lot of behavior changes in these um, in these diseases, and in a way, it's kind of um, it's a funny distinction to talk about cognitive changes and behavioral changes because there's a lot of relationships between the two. And after all, they all relate to changes in brain structure as a result of disease and changes in neurotransmitters and therefore signaling between brain regions. Um, but we tend to, you know, call some changes cognitive changes and some changes behavioral changes. So <clears throat> I'm going to go through briefly some of the main uh, behavioral symptoms that we uh, spend some time assessing and uh, also uh, counseling on in people with uh, Lewy body dementias. So the first is apathy. And um, the simplest way to think about apathy is that it's a loss of motivation. And often what it is that people uh, will note is that they just need a bit of an extra push to do things. It's not that they don't enjoy things. And so it's not that they have anhedonia or a loss of enjoyment of participation in activities. It's just that it's harder to get themselves to do it. Um, and uh, this is actually an area of uh, great interest in my own research group, which where we and many, many others around the world are trying to understand what exactly this represents. And it's a really important uh, symptom, uh, not only because it's present across most uh, dementias, <clears throat> but because it can really affect the quality of life, both for the patient as well as for the caregiver, because a lot of things can be for, become more difficult uh, if the apathy becomes quite severe. 
The second is uh, mood symptoms. So this uh, mood symptoms are very common in the dementia with Lewy bodies. Uh, in fact, uh, we think that a lot of people develop mood symptoms before they develop signs of either Parkinson's disease or dementia with Lewy bodies and anxiety and depression are, are among the most common. Um, hallucinations, as I mentioned uh, initially, is actually one of the core features of dementia with Lewy bodies and of Parkinson's disease dementia. And uh, hallucinations can occur in Alzheimer's disease too, but typically much later. And so when they occur early uh, in the, you know, along the kind of um, timeline of cognitive changes, that's another clue that we're dealing with one of the dementia with one of the Lewy body dementias. And so there's also kind of a temporal evolution to these hallucinations. Initially, people will often describe just that they have a sense of a presence and then they or or they they feel that they see a shadow passing them by and when they turn they don't see anything there and so these are not the types of things that people tend to report you really have to ask them about them because they don't tend to stand out to people as being particularly abnormal and over time generally these very subtle uh illusions and sometimes hallucinations can develop into more elaborate uh, visions. So full hallucinations. And we refer to those as complex hallucinations. And so people tend to see uh, little children are, are often prominent into hallucinations of people with Lewy body dementias, uh, little animals, bugs kind of crawling along the bottom, bottom of the wall. And most of these hallucin hallucinations are typically visual. And so there's not an auditory uh, component to them or a smell component, but occasionally, especially uh, later on uh, in the disease, uh, those elements can be included too. <clears throat> and then finally, um, kind of related to the to behavior and cognition are uh, is uh, sleepiness. And I should have written here too, uh, sleepiness and fluctuations in attention. And so uh, one of the features of both Parkinson's disease, dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies is that people tend to, uh, will often describe or their uh, caregivers will describe that they have good times of the day and bad times of the day and that their cognitive function is quite different in those good times compared to those bad periods of the day. And those fluctuations can happen over the course of hours. <clears throat> and so in those you know, uh, times where they're not doing so well, it's either because they're drowsy and they're feeling a little sleepy or just because their, their level of attention is just much reduced compared to what they are able to achieve at other times of the day. And this too can be uh, quite concerning. <clears throat> and so um, uh, the final piece is they just wanted to, to touch briefly on uh, treatment. Uh, and I'm not going to go into any details here, but I'm happy to answer any questions, of course. And so the strategy or the approach to treatment is first that we want to address all of the symptoms of this person who's presenting with cognitive changes. And that includes the cognitive symptoms and the variety of them, the behavioral symptoms, as well as all of the other symptoms that can be associated uh, with some of these dementias. And so sometimes that can have to do with blood pressure changes, uh, changes to smell, constipation. And so uh, uh, I can ask answer questions about those too. They're not, they're, they're not cognitive symptoms, but they are directly related to the dementia as well. And then once we have a good sense of what all these symptoms are, it's important to, to figure out with the patient and with their caregiver what the most bothersome symptoms are, because it can be difficult to manage everything, uh, not to mention because the medications can have side effects. And so we often have to prioritize the things that are most important. And in a single clinic visit, it's also important that we generally only want to make one medication change. And so there's often a, a process of figuring out, well, what's the thing that we want to address now? What's most bothersome or what's most in interfering with the ability to care for this person? And that's what we focus on. 
And related to that point, uh, the key is to try to achieve a balance between the benefits of some of the medications and so the of the approaches and, and the side effects and the difficulties that can arise. And so the different general uh, parts of our approach to management are one, uh, education. I think uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be really curious to hear feedback from, the, uh, from your audience, but uh, my sense that I get from talking to families is it can be very helpful to go through all of these different aspects of the way that dementia can affect a person's cognition and behavior because it can often validate all of the difficulties that one is having at home and uh, situate them clearly in the setting of the disease. And that's not, especially for things like ap apathy in particular and mood symptoms too, people don't often realize that they're directly related to the dementia and it can create a lot of frustration. And so uh, to recognize that these things are key symptoms of the dementia, I think can sometimes help. But the other piece of education is also to uh, set uh, realistic expectations about what it is possible for us to do uh, with non-pharmacologic strategies and with pharmacologic strategies and to give a sense of what the, what is the general timeline that we're looking at. How do we expect things to change over time without, of course, you know, ever being able to give specifics, which can be difficult, but uh, nonetheless to, to give a sense of what's to come. And so we have non-pharmacologic approaches, which, uh, you know, for us in our movement disorders clinic at, at McGill, we're really fortunate. We have a multidisciplinary uh, care team. And so we have an occupational therapist, therapist, social worker, uh, nutritionist, uh, uh, two nurses working with us. And so the whole team is important in putting in place all of the strategies that can help. And then we have a variety of pharmacologic approaches. <clears throat> um, I think that I will stop there because uh, I, I know that Claire may have some questions. Dr. Sharp, thank you very, very much for this very, very informative um, presentation. I mean, very I found it very helpful, especially to take us through the whole um, clinical assessment, how you do it. You know, that's something that we don't get to see too often. So um, first of all, with regards to education, I mean, you know, unfortunately, since there is no cure for dementia, I mean, it's really about becoming as educated as possible. I would really like to let our audience know, um, for those people who may have not received uh, the latest newsletter, that the McGill Dementia Education Program has recently published a free um, resource for all family members that can be accessed at mcgill.ca slash dementia. It's called Dementia Your Companion Guide. And it talks a lot about how to manage some of the challenging behaviors, you know, a lot of non-pharmacological approaches, and really provides a really great explanation um, for all the different types of dementia. Um, for, I have time for one question, Dr. Sharp. In terms of the use of medications, I mean, it's really about managing the, the, the behavioral symptoms, right? It's really about managing anxiety, managing depression, or managing those hallucinations. Yes. Um, th those are probably more so than the cognitive changes themselves, in a way, the areas where we have best success, I would say, with the uh, pharmacologic strategies. And um, uh, really, I mean, we have a variety of drugs that we can use. Uh, some of them are, have been developed specifically in the context of Parkinson's disease. So those would be the ones that uh, uh, change the levels of dopamine in the brain, which we know to be reduced in people with, with these conditions. And then others are medications that have been borrowed from the world of Alzheimer's disease or from the world of psychiatry. And 
fundamentally what's happening in the brain is there's a change in the neurotransmitters because the neurons that are dying as a result of the, of the disease process are neurons that normally would produce neurotransmitters like serotonin, which is linked to depression, uh, noradrenaline, which is also in some ways linked to depression and linked to attention, uh, acetylcholine linked to Alzheimer's disease and the, uh, the cognitive changes that are that we know of that uh, sphere. And then the dopamine, which we know is linked to, to some of the symptoms in Parkinson's disease. And so all the medications we have are to kind of tweak those neurotransmitters and affect them directly. And, and that's kind of how we hope to achieve some uh, improvements in the different uh, symptoms. Well, Dr. Sharp, thank you so much for being with us today on McGill Cares. And once again, it was a really very, very educational and informational uh, presentation. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. This webcast is an initiative of the McGill Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. Once again, I would like to thank the Zeller Family Foundation for supporting today's webcast. If you would like to make a contribution to our program or for more information, including having access to the Dementia Your Companion Guide, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if you would like to join our mailing, our mailing list to be notified about upcoming episodes of McGill Cares and other programs that we have within our uh, department, please email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Thank you for watching.